This is John. I got your visual. Come in, Mike. I'm standing by for you. Roger. I'll be there in a couple of months. In the meantime, get him out. listening to episode 21 of the Men Among Men Stories podcast with myself, Hank, from Fire Force Ventures, and Bindu from the Men Among Men Stories podcast. Hank. Hank to yourself. Let's, let's crack on. Here is how my injury occurred. I acted as a young fellow, full of manly courage, and thinking that while I was young I ought to make myself a man in good company. On Sunday near Lanschut, we were fighting a battle like I described earlier and the Nurembergians aimed a cannon at friend and foe alike. Our enemies had an advantageous position in a ditch, and I would have very much desired to clash my spear against them. When I was standing still and was looking for an opportunity to strike, the Nurembergians suddenly turned their cannon against us, and with it shot my sword pommel in two, so that half it cut into my arm and into the bracers too. The pommel was so deep in the bracers that no one could see it anymore. It still surprises me that I did not fall off my horse. My bracers stayed whole, besides the corners, which stood out a bit. The other parts of the sword grip were not split into two, but I could not see them. I think those parts were the ones that cut my hand off, between the glove and the crossbow gear. The arm was shattered from front to back. Then I noticed that my hand hung limply by the skin, and my spear dropped below my horse. I acted like nothing happened. I turned my horse around and got away from the enemy and backed my people without any trouble. An old Lansknecht came to me who wanted to join the battle. I called him over and asked him to stay with me because he saw how dire my situation was. He did as I said and then left to find the doctor. When I arrived in Lanschut, my old comrades who fought against me in the battle described me how I was shot. A nobleman named Fabian von Walsdorf of Vochtlander was hit by the same shot and was killed by it, even though the shot hit me first. Therefore, both friend and enemy were harmed by it. This nobleman was a fine, beautiful man. So beautiful, you could not find a more handsome man among a thousand men. I was also told what I did on Saturday and Sunday, and they gave me all the details, from what armor I wore to which horse I rode. They also knew all my actions in detail. I remained in Landshut from St. Jacob's Day until Carnival, and I do not need to mention what great pains I felt during that time. I begged God to be merciful and take me up to him because I was now a ruined warrior. I then remembered a knight who I had heard of from my father, Old Falsgrafs and Hohenlohen, knights. His name was Kochli. He also had only one hand and still could do everything he needed to do against his enemies on the battlefield, like everyone else. I prayed to God and thought to myself, that even if I had twelve hands, they would be useless if I did not have his grace. My iron hand was only a minor benefit, but I still wanted to be as capable on the battlefield as any other normal man. That was a bit of a uh, a longer excerpt than we usually read from the book The Autobiography of Sir Gotts von Berlitschkin. I'm going to say his name incorrectly a lot of times. Sir Gods von Berlitschkin, better known as Sir Gods of the Iron Hand, a knight of the Holy Roman Empire. Right, so in case you haven't already gathered, this is a autobiography from the mid-16th century. For that reason, if you're a medievalist, hardcore HEMA enthusiast or something to that effect, 
or a serious pike and shot um, warfare enthusiast, warfare enthusiast or expert, you might want to turn this one off because we're a bunch of idiots who aren't super attuned to uh, the era. Perhaps now yeah. I do have a little bit of a background academically in terms of having like studied this at an undergraduate level. Myself as well, do tiny bit, but yeah. So I, I have a little bit more, I think, than you. Based yes. On what my, my, yeah. my degree focus was on early modern European history, but Correct. again, that yeah. doesn't make me an expert. Like mm-hmm. it's just a piece of paper that I have. So, FYI, if you're one of those in those three groups of people, hematypes. Uh, I'd add a fourth group: uh, people who are actually German speakers. We are sorry, German <laughs> German speakers. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so here's the people we're going to offend with this one. It's a great story, by the way. We're we're going to get into what. Why we picked this one and why why it, it it fits in with the theme of men among men stories, even though this is the oldest one we've done. So far. This is yeah. If you thought um, Harris so again, was old, we're going way further back going for this way one. Further back for this one, but again, if you're a Hema enthusiast, you're a Pike and Shot enthusiast, you're a medievalist, or uh, you're a German a native German speaker, um, we're gonna. Probably screw it, food things up, but we you know we did we did do as much research as yeah. possible to kind of back up what we're going to say about this one and our thoughts uh, because it is a very interesting story um, and this is one that you brought to my attention so take it away man like why who, who the heck was this gods well, of the iron hand so gods of the iron hand is a famous or infamous basically mercenary knight who lived from 1480 to 1562 in what is now modern day Germany which back then was called the Holy Roman Empire which was a extremely confusing mess of small states generally dominated by Austria and ruled by a king called the or emperor called the Holy Roman Emperor who sometimes was not German was sometimes a king of Spain or elsewhere uh, I think once or twice he was a Frenchman but back then Germany was basically this extremely messy conglomeration of small states ruled over by noble houses um, and knights and nobles of all kinds, all ranks. And it was a real battle royale back in the day. And one of these nobles was Gotts von Berlichkin, who I'm just going to call Gotts from the now on because I'm real having trouble pronouncing his last name, better known as Gotts of the Iron Hand. The reason for this is, if not too far into his military career, his right arm was basically shattered by a cannonball, and that was the long excerpt that I read at the beginning there, and it was replaced with an iron hand. So he was kind of had this sort of James Bond, <laughs> 16th century James Bond villain kind of looked him with a with a metal arm, and uh, he was one of the most famous kind of knights of this period, and he was very much a mercenary who served a lot of different causes and fought for often money, sometimes a bit more noble reasons, but usually money and land. Uh, in this very confusing socio-political mess called the Holy Roman Empire. So in case you haven't already gathered, uh, the language of the 16th century, especially the English and German translation of, well, the sorry, the German-English translation and just the age of the language is very prominent in terms of how God speaks. So that's, that's why we kind of picked this excerpt obviously it's a very important part of this guy's life. He is a right arm amputee. Um, but the way he writes and talks, I guess, is very old-timey. 
and I think that's a bit of an understatement. This is this is a bit before even old timey talk. Yeah, this the is really is very, old. <laughs> the language is very poetic, and it's it, in a way it's almost more nuanced because there's certain like he can't say certain things um, just based off of the political climate at the time. It was a very it was a time of a lot of like strife. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the Protestant Reformation was happening throughout Europe, and it's like he passed, he dies like right at the cusp of one of the most destructive wars in human history. And we'll get into all, all that context a little later. But on top of that, this is a guy also trying to defend his own reputation, uh, his Christian virtues as well, which come out a lot through the book, which is a very important part of like this guy's life. Now, Everyone's life argument. Back yeah, but uh, for this guy especially, he's trying to defend his reputation. He's also really trying to prove that he is the ideal knight in terms of chivalric values and having, I guess, masculine virtues. Uh, in in that sense, he can't really talk about the horrors of war in the way that we're kind of familiar with. So, for a book like Rifleman Harris, which we did, I think it was episode seventeen. Right? Correct. Right, so episode 17, where we did Rifleman Harris, which dates back to the Napoleonic era, it was real easy to tell where he was trying to emphasize, like, this is these are the horrors of war, like, this family was dying and it's horrible. Um, whereas when, when Gotts writes it, it sounds almost foreign to us to just be like, this was the most beautiful man I'd ever seen get killed. It's kind of a weird statement. It's a little off-putting. There's There's... <laughs> Little because, homoerotic. Little, I, I wanted to avoid going there, but we went there, so we're going to go there. It is a little homoerotic, and without understanding, to a modern yeah. context, so, when we hear someone describe for another sure, man as a beautiful for man, for sure. So if we don't know that, like this is just the context we're going into with this book, and if, like if you're not aware of this context, if you thought this was written today, it would sound very, very, very alien. And I mean, yeah. Harris enough was pretty alien for English from 200 years ago where he has to censor the word damn because yeah. it's, it's a cuss. So, like, the, the word damn is literally censored. I remember reading it for the first time, and I'm like, why D slash slash slash, like, what is that? And I'm like, oh, it's it's the word damn, right? Like, he can't say the word damn because it's a bad word. Uh, whereas we can we can drop F-bombs on this podcast <laughs> yeah. now and nothing happens to us. So, Gotts is in, living in an even more cloistered society where... The lang- just because of how, I guess, the mindset and, and words meant different things. And you needed to uh, inhabit a completely different mindset than what we're familiar with. Um, and obviously live in a political landscape that is also very, very alien to us. Extremely uh, so. This is, this is why he kind of talks the way he does. And that's why we picked a rather long excerpt at the beginning, uh, just to contextualize that. Uh, let's talk about this Holy Roman Empire. Before we get into Gods himself, who was a, was a total man among men, right? I think he fits into the category. we we got to talk about this Holy Roman Empire. Because the, the politics end up turning into like three or four pages. Or actually, no, probably half of this book is footnotes. Just explaining the political context. And even then, it's the still like context. a guessing Yeah, it's still a lot of it is still yeah. like... Question mark, question mark, question There's There's certain things that... that that's they, not a knock against the editor or the translator. They, they do a very good job. It's yeah. just, this is such a confusing... Time. It's a time that's... It's a t- confusing time. Yeah, especially in this particular country. The Yeah, so there's a there's a old 
history major joke, and you've probably heard it, and it's that the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy, Roman, or an empire. Right? Yeah, that's, that's I, I personally true. hate that joke. I find it's, it's a, the it's most Reddit meme. brain thing ever. <laughs> I, I, I know, but, it, like, but yeah. it's true. It's, it's completely well, true. The it's, empire was German, right? So basically what, it, what had happened in the aftermath of the fall of at least Western Rome yes. in, in the 5th century um, was that the all of these like rump states so these like surviving Roman states kind of existed around yeah. and, uh, and, per- and and all, all the barbarian kingdoms that had kind of taken over different territories all were like worthy inheritors and, and the same you, you saw the same thing in that after the death of Alexander where all of his generals were like no I am the inheritor yeah and it's just it was just one of those scenarios and basically this went on till the days of Charlemagne that's what I was about, onwards, about exactly. to say. The, the the people who really sort of, like, everyone was trying to be the next Rome, but the people who came the closest were the Franks, who were a yes. Germanic people who existed in both what is now modern-day France and a bit of modern-day Germany. And their leader eventually was a guy named Charlemagne, who was an extremely powerful king. Uh, to give you, an ex- most of you probably heard this of this guy, but... To give you just one sense example of how, what a big deal this guy is, he's often called the father of Europe. Uh, and yeah, he was crowned the first Holy Roman Emperor, the first sort of successor to Rome by the Pope. Right. And interestingly enough, even though he most of his kingdom was in France, the people who would inherit his title would govern what is essentially Central Europe. So what's now Germany, um, a bit of Poland, uh, the Czech, Czechia... Uh, Austria, which was kind of generally seen as the most powerful, important state in the Holy Roman Empire, and you know, just little bits of like the border regions of like Switzerland, France, and like the Low Countries, but mainly this is Germany. Exactly, at least Germany that we yeah. know today. Well, yeah, and the people who lived there lived in there mostly spoke German. They would be considered, I guess, ethnically German, like they were the Germans. So upon the death of Charlemagne and his son later on, the the empire that he does establish as the the, the Carolinian Empire, probably mispronouncing yeah. that. We're no, 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 you have that right. So, yeah. uh, we're going to mispronounce a lot of stuff today. Yes, we are. All German. So I'm just caveating that again. We're going to mispronounce a lot of stuff. But the the Carolinian Empire does basically collapse and disintegrate after the death of Charlemagne. It's never as big as that again. Um, there are different attempts throughout history. But just because of the fact that the idea of, well, the, the absolute monarch slowly starts to... Do, I guess the feudal monarch... Yeah, there aren't absolute monarchs at this point. So, sorry. The feudal monarchs are starting to consolidate their power and... Yeah. They're... they're, they're well, just think of where the word feud, right? We're going to yeah. get into feuds, yeah. but uh, the word feud in, fe- in the feudal kings, right implies that they were always in conflict with one another. Yeah. And um, people have their feudal obligations to... I'm, I'm simplifying this significantly, and we are, we are going to simplify this history as much as we can here because it's, it's super convoluted. And it's actually mentioned at the beginning of the book, it has nothing to do with modern-day history at all. So please do not take this as a, uh, a political message. <laughs> we're not advocating anything. This is just kind of... <laughs> the recreation of the Holy Roman yeah, Empire. No, Break not. Germany back up into 60 states. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> we're not... Like, this is... This is, again, just like the language, the politics is very alien, and we're not trying to push any message with this, but... Yes. Uh, these... 
this was a system that was constantly in conflict after you know the collapse of the central authority, which was the Carolinian Empire and the Mer- Merovingian dynasty. dynasty. Yeah, which was Charlemagne's dynasty that didn't you know. Everybody claimed ancestry from Charlemagne, but no one could really back it up, and they all just fought for a good number of years until the Absolute Monarchy. Sorry, I jumped ahead to the Absolute Monarchies. They don't show up until a little later. That's a little after this book, yeah. Yeah, so uh, the Absolute Monarchies develop as a result of this crap. This is like the the worst stages of these feudal kings fighting and and feudal princes and dukes duking it out until uh, we get to the stage of... Absolute monarchy. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, like, all of Europe is like this, guys, but Germany, Holy Roman Empire especially. Like, the only thing I can think of that's as chaotic as the Holy Roman Empire is, like, the Chinese warlord era. Yes. Which we'll get to at some pod, some yeah. other podcast sometime. But just, like, if you look a map, like, at a map of the Holy Roman Empire, it looks like a Jackson Pollock painting. There's just splashes of color everywhere which represent different states. Yep. Some of them are relatively big. Some of them are, like, basically a town. It's very messy. Yeah, so it wasn't really a empire in the sense that we think of empires. Yeah, it, was it wasn't loose, an empire in the sense of, like, the British or, it was like, a the loose French. It was conglomeration of people that were somewhat similar but really, really, really hated each other. It was as if the uh, Athenians were to declare themselves an empire based off of all the city-states or the Peloponnesian League were to be like, we're an empire now. It's just kind of like, well, everybody's kind of acting independently. Um, It's not that that doesn't mean that the the Kaiser or the Holy Roman Empire emperor um, didn't have a bit of power. He was able to do certain things and basically turn the turn the page of history, so to speak, at times. But that being said, these local rulers, dukes, princes, sometimes princesses, sometimes random queens, had a lot of authority in their own little little kingdoms, right? And chaos ensued as a result because there were so damn many of them, they were constantly feuding, uh, not just at the le- the macro level of, say, the this city or the nation or whatever against another nation, but also at the micro level between individuals, individuals either from a different geographical area, individuals of a different faith group, uh, because at this time, slowly the the Protestant, well, basically towards the end of God's life, the Protestant Reformation was in full swing, so there was a schism within Christianity, so now within faith groups, uh, within and families, and even within the family—sorry, between families and even within families themselves, there is a, there would be squabbles all the time. This is the world that uh, we are entering, as far as politics goes. Now, another piece of this, because this is not a political podcast, right? And this is not just a general history podcast. Uh, and, th- and this is something that a lot of people don't always tie into gods and discussions of him, because there have been different videos and mentions about him, but it was the actual combat uh, and what that looked like in the era. The actual fighting. Mm-hmm. What made Gots the man among men that we're exploring here today. The fighting of this, or I guess the, what do you want to call it, the fighting, the man-on-man fighting of this era was interesting, to say the least. This is sort of a time period of change 
in terms of mil, especially in military uh, tactics. For the last basically almost thousand years, uh, especially European warfare has been dominated by hand to hand combat and cavalry. And especially, uh, you know, like archers play an important role, of course, but there's this is still very much the era of sword duels and, you know, fighting each other with spears and stuff like that. Ranged weapons are important, but they haven't quite taken the predominant role they will in later centuries. A lot of this is still two dudes, or a bunch of dudes, hacking at each other with sharp implements. And a lot of the fighting Gots describes is like that. So, in many ways, the sword duels themselves are like I think you mentioned it, like a chess match. Almost. Yeah, it's right? where where there's two guys and uh, what like basically you're. It's almost like a chess match or jujitsu match or whatever, where it's all about how you're maneuvering, rather than just having say strength of numbers or being able to generally flank around the enemy to destroy them. Yeah, which is what we think of now when we think of even like the Napoleonic era onwards, it's you engage, you skirmish, and then you engage and you flank around, right? There's just, just some basic things, basic events, sequences of events that happens, happen in battles mm-hmm. uh, for them to, to go on, and fights in general uh, in a military context or firefights. Uh, these fights were almost... Almost like wrestling match, like professional wrestling matches, except they weren't choreographed. It's very interesting. So uh, one of one of the things that really stuck out to me was there was a there's a sword duel that Gots gets into, and again he's he's a knight. He's in the knightly class, so he's a knight of the sword. Um, the lower classes would probably be carrying some sort of a spear, or yeah, and then a short bladed weapon, short like blade. a sword or an axe. Um, at times they'd have a matchlock. Firearm, yes. right, or yeah. crossbow. Lots of crossbows in this era, uh, but he was a he was a knight. So knights in this era were cavalrymen, most often cavalrymen, and had swords. Now it's different in every region of Europe. We're not like saying this exclusively, but generally speaking, in within the boundaries of the Holy Roman Empire, lances and swords were the way to go for armored knightly cavalry uh, which gods belong to anyways in this in this individual sword fight that uh, just to go back to that he uh, this guy basically keeps trying to lift up his arm to get to the I guess you can call it the soft underarm area where he wasn't as uh, well protected by his plate armor so basically this whole sword fight really turned into this like grappling match and it's, it's quite interesting to hear his description of it we're not going to read that the whole part because it's a pretty long sequence but basically it's him narrating like this guy constantly flipping his sword underneath his armpit to just flip it up and and then them grappling and stuff afterwards and if again if we took out the word armor and we took out the word sword it almost sounds like someone's narrating a boxing match or, or a wrestling match or an MMA fight or something it's very like not choreographed. What's what's the word? You know, like really, um, it's very strategic, right? The moves are thought out very at a very you know strategic context. Again, we're not HEMA people, so this is not something we're super 
switched on about, but you know, we we've seen human people do their thing, and it's it's like a dance, yeah, almost right. It's not it's not this brute force. Uh, Game of Thrones. I have big sword. I swing, and your head comes flying off. It's nothing like that. It's this. It's a, it's a dance, and the best dancer wins. Yeah, and something that we should just take, we should just lay out right now. We should get on get on the table. Um, we have to dispel a myth here about if you watch, you know, and we're not saying don't watch these things, but if you watch like Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones. Most movies that are set in either a medieval or fantasy environment, you have dudes like hacking at each other, like slicing off arms and legs. That that was not how medieval battles were generally fought. Maybe for the like infantry who didn't have a lot of armor, but knightly armor was extremely difficult to actually pierce. Um, so usually, it two knights fighting each other devolved into them literally trying to like stab each other in the joint or a weak spot, like. You know where the visor is, or where the helmet underarm. meets the collar, underarm, under groin, girdle. even. Yeah, yeah, under, under the girdle. Yeah, yeah. yeah, at these weak spots because you couldn't just slice through armor. All these, and that that uh, applies to you know when they're fighting on horseback too. The, these scenes you see in the movies, them charging to in lances, puncturing breastplates, and skewering a guy—that's total fiction. Didn't happen. Medieval armor was actually really, really hard to get through. The only things that could like puncture it generally efficiently is were gunpowder weapons, pretty much. Yeah. And even then, early gunpowder weapons sometimes had trouble puncturing knight armor. So, for that reason, a lot of these fights turn into almost grappling matches, and that's yeah, where the, that's where the strategy comes in. Of course, this is just fighting at the knightly level. It might have been different for a poor Archibus. Fighting across yeah. Coleman on the other end of the battle. Yeah, if you don't have a lot of armor, yes, your head will come clean off. But anyway, yeah. the, the just, but generally speaking, yeah. um, people people wanted to protect themselves, and as a and we'll we'll get into this in a little bit with the re- discussion about the infantry revolution here. But even within the lower classes, a lot of people were figuring out even with their because this is kind of later in the feudal era, right? This isn't. William the Conqueror. No, this, that's, this is yeah. That this would be arguably just the beginning of the feudal this era. This isn't like great heathen army stuff. This is a, this yeah. is pretty late. Even like the let's say the the poorer quality infantry, the the commoners, the the, the um, there's a thing from Witcher. I don't know if you're familiar with you know Witcher, right? In the game, yeah. So there's this uh, there's a literal unit like like an army unit in the Empire, and the unit is called the PFI. And it's the poor fucking infantry. That's not even. That's, I'm not even joking. There's a card, and yeah. it's this poor guy, and you can see him. He's got like a steel helmet on and like just rags, and he's got like a spear, and they're like the front line of the imperial army or whatever. So, anyways, I'll, I'll just call him because I, I like that. I like that picture in my mind. The poor fucking infantry. The guys that have to form lines and yeah, do the bulk of the fighting. Yeah, <laughs> right? infantry. Yeah. You did not want to be a medieval yeah, infantryman. So, so those guys even. Uh, in the 16th century, especially in Germany, uh, really started to kit themselves out better as the idea of professional soldiering slowly started to evolve with this infantry revolution that we're going to talk about. Um, but even the the lowliest, crappiest spearman or halberdier or uh, musketeer, crossbowman would start outfitting himself with better armor, right? 
just given the fact that now a lot of them had access to different attendants in the same way that knights historically did with squires. They had their own attendants. They had sutlers follow them around camps. They armed themselves kind of to win the battle rather than arm, arm themselves with whatever they could scrounge because a campaign was called up. Um, professional mercenaries started to develop and Gots in many ways turns despite the fact that he is from a knightly class and descended from I guess kind of the upper upper crust of society he becomes kind of a mercenary in many ways himself uh, fighting for kind of whoever he feels like rather than a specific duchy or king or prince or whatever so this is this is the the kind of fighting that uh, we're dealing with in this era, right? Where everybody is starting to really, really suit up, and people really have to start thinking about how you engage. And uh, let's put it that, that you know any any tactics from the earlier medieval era, the high high medieval era, um, Agincourt tier tactics don't really fly anymore in this world. Well, Agincourt kind of feeds into this. So we've been yeah, talking yeah. a lot of times with the infantry revolution. Sorry, I should say Hastings tactics. We're going to move... Yes, back. yeah. Agincourt actually is important. I'll, I'll take that back. So we're moving away from this like Battle of Hastings. We have two big shield walls. They clash into each other. The cavalry go on the flanks. and Yeah. The, the archers kind of skirmish each other and stuff. And eventually one army breaks and slaughters the other one. Yeah. Right? And everybody... On the other army dies. That's generally how it's. Yeah, that's dark age, and I know yeah. dark age is an anachronistic term, but yeah. like that's dark age, early medieval warfare. Right. So this doesn't quite happen anymore. Now these armies are like they move a lot. They move a little bit slower, and they clash, and it's almost like individual duels. And at different times, they will be they like certain units will be redeployed. Um, to let, you know, musketeers up front, cannon teams, or artillery teams, I guess, with early cannons up front, uh, pikemen, swordsmen. You have this, like, rotating cycle. Eventually, armies did break over time, uh, and you'd still have that same sequence, but things moved kind of almost a little slower, and you could do, uh, in some ways, actually, more with fewer men. As a result, uh, but we let's talk about this infantry revolution because that's this is a big part of it. This is a huge development in military history. So basically, from the fall of the Roman Empire in 476 AD to about this kind of time, warfare was dominated by the cavalry. The cavalry was arguably the most important force. Right. on the battlefield. And it's simply because very little in that time period could stand up to a massive amount of armored men just thundering down on horseback on you. Very little could stop that. Yeah, now, but, there's a few yeah. battles in the Middle Ages where we see that kind of, that notion challenged. Bannockburn, where the Scottish Skiltrons basically wipe out the cream of English chivalry. And then the English do it a couple of times to the uh, the French knights at you know Cressy and Poitiers and Agincourt, uh, especially Agincourt where there isn't many English knights on horseback. Um, but that is a, the norm. The norm is basically whoever's got the more knights 
and can sort of so wheel them sorry, around you faster. Say that's that's not the norm. Agincourt, Crazy. Sorry, yeah, that's not the norm. The are, norm. That's why they're remembered. That's, that's why they're why, remembered. Yeah. yeah, the norm yeah. is these battles where you know the infantry yeah, kind the of sequence, slog right? at each yeah, other, right? then the so, cavalry kind of yeah. who dr- clash and drive the weaker cavalry in, and the stronger cavalry just frickin' runs into the flank of the other infantry and just scatters them. And that's it. Uh, basically, again, that sequence, if you guys can visualize it, basically, archers show up in skirmish. Um, the infantry kind of come into yeah. each other. They There's engage. an exchange of arrows. The infantry yeah. smash into each other. The cavalry smash into each other. And then, and then the weaker the cavalry runs away, and the stronger cavalry yeah. just rolls through the enemy infantry like a wrecking ball. And then there's just a general slaughter. Yeah, and there's there's no most of the killing was typically done as the enemy had their backs to you. Yeah, right. It's not the the when you're in the like, the shield wall or whatever. When you're in the actual meat grinder, yeah, um, it's actually kind of hard to kill anybody. Yeah, because you're kind of having to stab so through your joints. Yeah, you don't have a lot of room to move around, and nor does the enemy. And it's just it's kind of just a shoving match. It's a big shoving match uh, until people start to break, and that's when the the real violence starts to happen. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's, there, you know, a Bosworth Field and stuff. You see it yeah. all the time, and in, in, um yeah, I think at, at Bosworth uh, there was there was a lot of evidence that like it was as the dudes returned, it, yeah. it was complete slaughter. Oh right? yeah, and that's when I think uh, it was Richard who was killed, King Richard. Was Richard the Third, yeah. Right? Bosworth, thirteen forty six. I want to say. No, 14, 14, 14 I think. I, I actually do not okay, know the exact sorry. date of Bosworth Fields. I just know I it was the end of the War of the Roses. But, um, yeah. At, at Bosworth Field, which is the end of the War of the Roses, English Civil War, one of the English Civil Wars in the medieval era, uh, the, the king is killed, basically, as yeah. he's kind of falling back. And he's yes. killed pretty brutally from an Israel. His, his head's cut off, if I remember. Not, no, so first, no, his head's like in his helmet and. What had happened was the dudes were just bashing it, and yeah. he, he had, like, multiple holes in his head. But apparently they weren't fatal. <laughs> he was still going until they, like, they, like, he died of, like, blood loss. It was... And then they cut he his head his, off. He was yeah. in his armor and stuff. I think his head stayed on the whole time. It rattled around in there a hell of a lot. I don't know. It might have come out, but he was still, like, intact. I might be thinking of just Shakespeare. Shakespeare yeah, hasn't no, beheaded. I don't, think, I don't think he's actually beheaded, because they found yeah. his body recently. Because as we mentioned, that was very hard to do to a knight in full armor. Yeah, so, like, yeah. he was still intact, but he had just... It was, like, four or five guys just nailing him with maces and yeah. battle axes and stuff, and he was... Yes. Like, he probably looked okay from the outside, but just inside... Yeah, like, a lot of these guys yeah. die from internal wounds, too, just because, yeah, like, it it's hard to pierce skin with this, but you could, like, crumple someone's insides yeah. with some of these so weapons. the slaughter happens when you're you're just surrounded and you're, you're being sh- yeah. overrun from... and you're running away. Yeah. Right? This, But now, with the infantry revolution... Something's um, changing. Something's changing. Where yeah. you have... Not just like I guess three different types of guys that are fighting the archers, the general infantry, and general the, cavalry, and the, and the general cavalry. So your your infantry levies and your knightly cavalry. Again, this is a generalization because I'm sure it was different in like Russia and different in in the Middle East and different. Yeah, you know, we're, different we're talking like, about like sort of Western Central Europe, and, yeah. and even even then, generally speaking, yes, yeah. right uh, now. 
you have the advent of firearms as they're getting a little bit better. Now, not not Napoleonic just quite yet, but matchlocks from China are starting to be imported. The development of gunpowder starts to really kick off in Europe. You have cannons. Uh, as early as like the 100 years or you already still you already have cannons. Yeah. Which is the 14th century. So like 200 years before Gotts was doing his thing, there were already a few cannons kicking around Europe. Yeah. Um, and largely in, in siege battles, but slowly there's in these like pitched on the field battles, yes. uh, they're starting to show up and you have cr- dedicated crossbow units. You have these mercenary units that are starting to develop um, largely through the influence of the Swiss. And uh, the, one of the things they developed was the, and I'm going to mess up this pronunciation, but it's the Gewalthafen. The Gewalthafen. The heap of violence. Literally tr- translated to heap of violence. And that's just this big mass of dudes. Everybody would have relatively little training compared to the training of, say, a elite knight of the perhaps 12th or 13th century. You had guys with probably a lot less training. Because, again, to be a knight, you need... To be a knight, you're fully armored, and there's there's a lot of money put into you, right? In case it's not already self-evident, wearing plate armor, having a sword and stuff, and a lance, and a horse, and attendants, and squires, that's kind of pricey. And it's a lifelong process. It starts when you're about 11 or 12 years old, yeah. when you become a squire. So this is... By the time you're on the battlefield as a fully qualified knight, uh, you've been training for almost a decade of your life at that point. Right before you're allowed onto the horse as a knight with your own attendants, and uh, you could very well just get an arrow through your eye slit and die in your first two seconds of battle. So the knights were, were pretty valuable dudes, and that's why oftentimes uh, in throughout medieval battles you'll see that they were captured and ransomed rather than just outright killed because they were worth that much money. They were more economically valuable than they were like strategically valuable dead. So it was like, so sorry, it was more of a benefit for your army to get money from capturing them than to just kill them and like deplete their manpower. That's how, that's how valuable knights were. So if you're a foot soldier, bad luck. <laughs> yeah. If you're a foot soldier, you're not, you're not worth a lot in this era. But, um, the, what the infantry revolution did is it really kind of evened the playing field. Yeah. It allowed the infantry now, despite still, in some ways, still being the poor fucking infantry, having to slug it out at times, and often with other infantry, uh, they, they really specialized training for individuals uh, to be part of a mass of dudes, right? Yeah. That, can, that could rotate almost in like the Roman... Well, this is system, yeah, or, or sort of the, like the way the Romans Legion moved, where you had guys rotate out of their line, uh, fort to the front to engage in a de- uh, depending on the circumstances, right, and also immediately retire, have another rank come up of dudes that did different yep. things. So pikemen, crossbowmen, musketeers, uh, they could easily rotate, have that mobility, and easier. Uh, have an easier time engaging with the cavalry. Yeah, I was actually just about to go into that. Is one of the big things of this infantry revolution is you start to have these, and this is a big part of the the Gul uh, Gulthafen, the heaps of violence. Gulthafen, the heaps of violence. The German Swiss. Yeah, um, 
is you have different groups of infantry working together in the same formation. You have guys with pikes and halberds. You have dudes with swords. You have um, or you know axes or maces, and you have guys with crossbows or muskets, all kind of protecting each other. And this is in some ways a. It's kind of interesting because this is at the same time as the Renaissance, where old like greco-roman ideas are coming back like and especially in terms of like art and architecture and medicine and all this but there's kind of a renaissance in almost uh military matters too because a lot of infantry is almost returning to the idea of the sort of greco-macedonian phalanx this huge just bristling wall of spears now mixed with like guys with guns and crossbows making it deadlier. And Phalanxes that, with guns. Yeah, and that proves basically something that can actually hold its own against cavalry, which is which yeah. is huge. The, the the charge of the knights on horseback is no longer this unstoppable force. And this kind of loose band of sort of shield wall of warriors that's been uh, you know, sort of a staple of the sort of medieval Europe in the Viking Age and after uh, for some time has been rejected and there's this almost this return to a bit more of a rigid formation albeit one that's able to move different R- equipped return, men uh, would you say it was a return to tradition I would say it was a return to tradition yes with guns with guns <laughs> yes it was archaeofuturism anyway archaeo futurism, awesome. uh, I like that term yeah no it's but yeah so this is a there's a real revolution here and you see this in things like the Hussite wars and stuff where you have and the the end the later battles of the um, the Hundred Years' War, where you know knights are starting to lose to infantry. Also, the Battle of like Grunwald and some of them in like Poland and Eastern Europe, you're starting to see the knights go down to basically peasants because the peasants are in these uh, very strong, very dense, but also somewhat flexible formations. And the knightly class, as a result, has to kind of respond to that with better armor and yeah but, but and it's slightly and like and they sort of step back like the yeah. cavalry cavalry is still important i would argue up until like the russian civil war that's kind of and world war one which are the last two battle two major sorry not battles which are the last hurrahs. two yeah two hurrahs and even then like roller one really shows the the weaknesses of cavalry yeah but cavalry still plays an important role to them but this is kind of the time where it takes a back seat to the to the infantry, like the Napoleonic Wars weren't won by the cavalry; they were won by infantry on yep. on both sides, French and British, uh, and so, everyone there's else. There's always a kind of romance still attached to the cavalry, yes, and the idea of being a cavalryman just because of that heritage of yeah. knightlyhood and and it is still the noble class like, profession yeah, in many exactly. ways. But but that being said, the battle is now won by artillery and infantry. Yes, artillery and infantry, and actually artillery and muskets. Uh, just jumping ahead, this is a bit after Goths, but we'll just throw this in briefly, is kind of what spelled the end of this return to phalanx. Like, these phalanxes are kind of very big up until sort of, I would say the sort of end of, like, the the English Civil War and that kind of period, where artillery and musketry just get so powerful that, like, it starts making sense to have guys in lines. Yeah. And that's the, yeah, the beginning of kind of this... So, the, the Gewaltafen would have been like 15, 16 ranks deep. Or yes. Like, really deep. Yeah. You think about that big blob yeah. of people, that's a great already target. It's a target-rich environment, right? Yeah. So that's why, as we move into the 1800s, and... Uh, well, even into the 1700s. 
even into the Great War, man, it's yeah. you, you. The line gets thinner and thinner and thinner yeah. and thinner. And then eventually, and World War Two, you just go to squad basis because <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're like, yeah, you're there's two machine guns have proved that you can't have dudes in big formations. Well, I, I think even the Second World War, like they started, at least in the U.S. I don't, I'm not super sure how it was in, with the with the Commonwealth system. I think they had something. It's it's kind of tricky with the Commonwealth system. It's a little different between each country, but it was. At like the fire team level, almost you had your Bren gun section, yeah. or your well, at least on the Commonwealth side, you had the Bren gun section. Then you have your um, the U.S. You have your fire teams. You have like a fire team that lays down a base of fire. You have a machine gun team. You have a mortar team, and then you have like one team with guys with like Thompsons or whatever. It, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. If, if, if we follow this trajectory, in the future it's going to be units of just one guy. <laughs> It's, uh, it's like Master Chief Spartan. Yeah, yeah, there's just going to be one dude in like a mech suit, and that's going to be like each unit. And was... That's good, though. That means like war is going to be fought by like seven people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be. It'll Very be low close. casualty, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I think we're even, we're kind of almost seeing that in uh, Russia, Ukraine. It's just, it seems like the Russians are, and the Ukrainians always like fight these almost one in one tank battles now. It's, uh, yeah. You don't, you don't. I mean, it's every, hard to everything. tell because they're all abandoned in fields, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, who knows? But yeah, we're getting we're getting a lot ahead of ourselves, and yeah. of course, the bayonet replaces the pike, which yes. is the end of pike and shot warfare. Yeah, and you just have these kind of not too dissimilar tactics, but moving more towards lines of guys: musket firing, reload, fire, reload. Yeah, you yeah. don't have to train, and then finally a bayonet charge. You don't have yeah. to train four different groups of guys now. Yes, one guy that does. Yeah, you have just infantry and cavalry. That's yeah. it. Courtesy of Brown Best. Yeah, infantry, cavalry, and artillery—just yeah. three different types of guys. Um, and yeah, and so yeah, I guess we will read just a uh, excerpt that kind of describes this kind of fighting. Yeah, specifically to deal with the the Swiss Gewalthafen and yeah, this Swiss Glass actually encounters early in his career. Yeah, the Swiss and the Germans kind of pioneer yeah. this warfare. Like at, the, at this time of uh, human history, the best soldiers in Europe are arguably the Swiss and the German Landsknechts, which are kind of these. Very mercenary armies, which make up a bulk of the fighting. Uh, in in the wars, Gotts fights. Most of the soldiers are either Swiss or these German landsknechts. Right. The, the Spanish are well known for their fighting as well, but they more fight kind of in looser formation because they're usually fighting like Aztecs and Ottoman corsairs and stuff. Well, the Europeans are fighting in this very different kind of they're fighting each other. Yes, yeah. Uh, just a real quick. Just another context point here before you get into the excerpt, but the reason why we haven't talked too much about Gotts' like early life and stuff is because it's honestly in the book it's really unclear. <laughs> he just he just like I was a squire then I, I was, was born. He, Here's he, my first battle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> straight. So this is not a typical autobiography. This is almost straight up a combat diary in many ways. And uh, we only know vaguely about, like, some of his family life and stuff. He mentions his wife, like, twice, and he doesn't even say her name. And he doesn't even say the fact that he remarried and stuff. So there's no, there's no like, personal life context to this. And this, like, typically that we get out of biography. Even, like, Griffin Harris, we knew he was a cobbler. This guy is just straight up, like, here is how I fought. So that hence why we've been focusing a lot on that, giving context to that. But uh, this is a description, again, from Gotts about... His first experience during, this, during one of the wars with the Swiss Confederation, dealing with these Swiss professional soldiers, uh, which heralded the advent of the infantry revolution. A bunch of Swiss troops sat in a church tower and defended themselves. 
but did not want to surrender, and instead said they would rather die like honorable oath keepers. Sir Melchior Suzel, who is defending the area between Schaffhausen and Tengen, was struck in the face with a stone by a group of Swiss soldiers who sallied out from the church. Many other nobles and non-nobles, on horse and on foot, were shot by the ones defending the church. When my horse, on which I served as a squire for the Markgraf, was shot, I ran on foot to the troops of the church and armed myself with an old spear because my rapier was still on the saddle of my dead horse. Suddenly, Mr. Jacob, a gunsmith and a thin little man, who stood bravely next to me, was hit with a shot. The round went through his body and hit another Württembergian man, who had only thin armor. He was killed, but the gunsmith survived. Finally, Sebaldus spat, and some others brought gunpowder and lit it under the church tower so that the soldier inside burned alive. One Swiss soldier fell down from above with a child in his arms. The Swiss soldier perished, but the child walked away without harm. A knight of the Markgraf took this child in. Where this child is today, I cannot tell, because I have not seen him since. Some knights spent too much time in the church, perhaps to pillage, but the powder caught up to them and they burned miserably in the fire. I cannot know if they all died or some survived, but nobody walked out. Our cohort on foot and horseback expected the enemy to attack while we ran out of the church, but nothing occurred, so we left. I did not participate in any serious fights during this war besides that situation. A lot going on in that one. Yeah, that's, that is even almost a bit of an unusual example because they're fighting kind of over a building, which would probably yeah. not be typical, but it also sort of just shows the kind of pitiless nature of this warfare. Like, they end up... They can't take the church, so they just light it on fire and burn all the guys inside alive. Including and then, some of their own and guys. Some, well, some of their own guys go in to, to loot. like, loot the dead bodies and themselves get burned. This is, this is long before the, the Hague and the Geneva Convention. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that's a good way for us to jump into talking about this sort of... So let's, let's break this down. Number one, the Swiss troops... Um, we're not even going to get into the political context of why they fought this war, because it was over something stupid. Just like all the others. They're, they're all yeah. like over some minor, minor land squabbles. You married my sister-in-law's daughter's And I'm friend, entitled to this marsh gonna, because yeah, of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah well, so, no, screw you, screw so, you. This so, means war. <laughs> some European affair happened, and there was a war between whatever faction he happened, gods happened to be fighting for at this time. Because so, he fights for like everybody at different points. Yeah. But he is fighting for uh, one of the German lords, and he's a knight at this point, right? This is relatively early in his career. These Swiss troops are holding the line, very Rurkstrift style, uh, right up until the very end, as the church tower that they're holding out on is burning. They're still fighting and throwing rocks and stuff. Now, I find it quite, quite interesting that he's... He's a little bit nonchalant about it, and it's just kind of just the way that the language comes off. But he does describe kind of like this fog of war situation or the, the randomness of, of combat in general. And it's a recurring theme throughout history is this guy that has the, um, the musket ball actually go through him survives, but the guy behind him who has the musket ball actually hit his armor dies, probably of like internal injuries, right? And the guy behind him was actually armored. So it's just... Combat is very random. It still is at this time. There's... Despite the fact that we've kind of... We kind of broke down how the battles sequentially happened and how they're starting to change, there was still that element of randomness if you were a poor grunt on the front. 
Um, and it just meant that uh, with the infantry revolution that knights kind of found themselves in this situation. Obviously that first excerpt where Gots gets his arm blown off by by a cannon shot uh, shows that no one is really safe. You can't you can't expect to get like ransomed. Um, you can't expect the uh, Agincourt treatment though if you're a knight. And for, for those not tracking Agincourt, basically the English slaughtered all the French knights they captured because yeah. they thought they were being flanked. And long story, but war crimes were committed from our modern perspective. And oh, every here, battle yeah, had war crimes. Yeah, the Scots yeah. acknowledged like that could be me. Right, there is a lot of randomness in com- in the combat. Um, I guess he kind of does mention it with like this was this was kind of a crazy scenario where the guy he sh- also like there's a random Swiss soldier jumping probably on fire from the church tower. He's got a kid in his hands. He dies, yeah. but the kid just walks off, and it's just one of those things that just combat, man. It's random. It's chaotic. He does a good job of capturing that. It does. It comes off kind of nonchalant, just given the fact that he, again, he's a knight. He's writing this to try to be like, didn't phase me, but you can only imagine what was really going through his mind at that time. Um, and uh, uh, you know, maybe this the writing about this was his way of coping with this. But he he obviously writes it from this like kind of almost a. a place of machismo where it's just like it didn't really phase me but this is just what I saw right because he didn't talk about his emotions mm-hmm. intentionally leaves them out but you can just imagine like it, it, it is chaotic this is still very chaotic mm-hmm. fighting and uh, it yeah just like you said pitiless yeah well and what's Pit, and, pity, pitiless pitiless is, pitiless is how you say it yeah and you know, and it's not just major wars that are like this. Like, there's a ton of... He describes these feuds, which, as you say, are over these really stupid, generally, like... It's like 200 square feet that they're fighting over. Yep. Or, like, you know, what would be the equivalent today of maybe, like, a million dollars or something. Or, like, somebody's bishop talked bad about you and said yeah, you're a Christian. Yeah, it's not just... So you would fight the knight who lives on the bishop's, like... A state, or yeah. a state or whatever, you'd fight that night and send an angry letter. So you'd send an angry letter to the bishop saying, "Like take that back." And then like these knights would fight sometimes one on one, as in like duels, basically. Sometimes in groups of ten, and sometimes in like the hundreds. And sometimes you just raid the other guy's land yep. and burn it down, and you'd just burn everything. And you'd also there's yep. a lot of people all the way from down to like peasants and like serving boys and girls all the way up to like knights themselves would be taken as hostages and bishops would be taken so one of the other things you do is just kidnap the bishop until he recanted or until someone gave him a lot of money and uh bishops sometimes even lead these feuds like there's a lot of this is an era where the the church is definitely very wrapped up in material affairs as much as spiritual affairs yeah and gots himself has even taken hostage at one point yes uh, it was uh, it was an interesting time. So um, we, we we picked another just good because again this is just the whole this whole thing is a collection of war stories basically, and we're kind of we are skipping as we always do. We're not a market substitute for reading this book. Do read the book; it's, it's an interesting read. Uh, we actually recommend listening to this podcast before you read. The book. Yeah, I probably should have said it because it's it's a lot of context you got to kind of have before you go into this. Otherwise, it's just the as we said with the language, it's a bit of a mess. But um, this is a 
this is uh, one of the engagements. I think this is like a feud, right? He's yeah. he's in a feud. Well, no, he, this is just an ambush. He doesn't even see this one coming. I mean, it's part of a feud, it's but part it's of not like he doesn't go there yeah. looking for a fight. He and his comrades just get ambushed while they're on the road. Right. I was thrown down, almost killed, and my comrades were strangled and stabbed. Even more so, some troops of the League, who I had met on the battlefield before, told me in secret that the highest captain of the League gave the order to take my life. I could write about more things like this, but I do not think this is necessary. God did not only watch over me in this situation alone, but it seems to me that he watched over the many times during my dangers, troubles, and feuds against the many different classes I made enemies of. He gave me the grace, charity, and aid, and cared more for me than I could have done myself. It is also true that I was put in an unfortunate, damaging, and disadvantageous position through the injustice done against me. So, through a lot of this book, Gotts is like praising God and thanking him for many things. He lives in a very religious time, but what I really want to emphasize that is he's the only one who survives of that ambush. All his comrades are strangled or stabbed. And then he's just taken, we won't read the longer part, but he'll be taken for ransom. Another excerpt we won't read where God's basically kidnaps an old man and a young boy and because he thinks the young boy will survive imprisonment in a cold, dark cell anymore, puts him and sends the old man out to get the ransom. And the old man basically abandons the boy and tells the, tells the guys to go kill Gots. It's never mentioned what happened to the boy. Like, I don't know if Gots released him or just let him die in the tower. But um, this is the kind of world it is. It is very, like, almost banditry. Like, a lot of these, the knights behave almost as highwaymen. In, in he, a lot of these feuds. he doesn't counter... Now, to be fair, he is kind of trying to protect his own reputation here. Yes. But he mentions he does some chivalric things for the lower class at different times. Like, he does encounter, um, in one instance, of a, another knight beating a random peasant for kind of, like, reasons unknown to him. But he's just like, you can't beat him, only I can beat him! <laughs> yeah. and, and, he doesn't beat the poor peasant, but he just, he like, fights this knight off, basically, yeah. for beating this peasant. And he's like, no, he's one of mine. Only <laughs> I can beat him. Kind of. But it, it, it's weird. Yeah. In a way, that was very honorable, but it's just like, for our modern uh, yeah. perspective, you're just like... It's like, how you dare you whip my slave? So, um, <laughs> this is, uh, again, this is this is the world that God's inhabits, and... Overall, he does. He participates in, in a lot of different conflicts that are just like this. Again, you mentioned the Swiss War, the War of the Swabian League. Uh, he's involved in the German Peasants' War, uh, which we're actually we'll get into towards the end here of uh, this podcast. But and he mentions in his younger years because it's not exactly known how many he actually participated in. But at least in his younger years, it was at least fifteen feuds in his own words. Fifteen mm-hmm. of these. In t- uh, on top of all the wars that he fights in, um, there's 15 like major spats at least that he's engaged in, where there is combat. There's people dying. There's like night duels and stuff. There's ambushes. He is captured in one of them. Uh, later on in the peasant Rebe- rebellion, he is kind of he's put under house arrest more or less. Yeah. At the end of that, because he kind of gets dragooned into it. Uh, we will talk about that peasant rebellion, but uh, it's important to kind of give context before we get into that of kind of something we figured out here, reading a little bit in between the lines. As I mentioned, this is kind of a combat diary 
a, a combat log, if you will, going over various engagements he, he fights in. Uh, towards the end of the book, uh, at least this copy of the book that we have, he actually has some stories in the afterwards. So I think it's like three different stories. And it's just like things that couldn't, he couldn't really put in the main biography. He's just like, I have this recollection, by the way, of this spat where I got into a fight with these knights in a field and these peasants were cheering us. And it's like two, three pages and he just goes on about the different sword moves he does and and, and stuff like that. Uh, so definitely if you're a He-Man enthusiast, if you're still listening to this and haven't tuned out and discussed at two noobs talking about this stuff, he does mention like the, the moves that he utilizes to like defeat these guys and stuff or scare them off at different times. But because it's just a collection of battles and conflicts, we kind of had to read in between the lines to figure out a little bit more about his life. And this is going to kind of become important uh, as we talk about the Peasant Re- Rebellion, which is really where he ends off his official autobiography, is with his involvement in this German Peasants' Revolt. But what what was life outside of combat like for these people? Again, he doesn't mention anything about his many, many children. I think he has seven children. If I you can check the front cover, I think it's seven, but only... Two of them survive to adulthood. He's married twice. Uh, it's in the it's in the picture here, right there. Um, how many kids did he have? He had three daughters and seven sons. Oh, five so of ten, ten five kids. of which died in early childhood. So well, five out of ten is not bad. Yeah, he lost half. That's actually <laughs> mortality rates were not child mortality rates were They're pretty high. Yeah. Pretty high in olden times. That's kind of why the average life expectancy is so low. Like. Even in medieval times, many people lived in their 60s, 70s, some Gots even in their 80s. Scots lived till his 80s. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's kind of a myth that people just died early, like very early on. But what happened is far more people died in childhood, which is why the average life expectancy... Childbirth and childhood, yeah. yeah. is so low for like the medieval ages or the and ancient world because, or like, whatever. the midwife techniques... Were yeah, there wasn't good medicine, yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah, yeah. But if yeah. you live to like 40... You're probably going to live for a few more decades because you were a tough bastard at that point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. Yeah, you were you were crotchety. Um, and Gots, just to emphasize, like in a world with such a low typical life expectancy, uh, Gots lived till he was in his eighties, which is yeah. uh, which is pretty incredible. But reading in between the lines, um, and this is just like the additional research we had to do because we're just like, okay, yeah. We gotta get into a little bit more about the psychology of this man. Obviously, he witnesses a lot of crazy stuff, and it's kind of why he's writing about it. Um, once we get to the peasant revolt, there's a little more that context like gives us more context as to why he's writing this because he's defending his reputation and his actions. But like, as far as what was life like outside of combat, he doesn't really talk about, and that's that's kind of those are the kind of the pieces that we had to fill in here. So. What, what we're able to kind of ascertain, and it's this is more for it's more so for like Germany in this era in the 16th century with the advent of the infantry revolution. Um, the it, it, this this thing happens where the officer class, so the knightly class, the leadership class, have a more cordial relationship with a lot of the lower ranking soldiers, right? The the grunts, the the poor fucking infantry, so to speak. Which is very interesting, right? They're often traveling in the same camps 
in very, very pro- close proximity to one another. Um, and you, you see this throughout, like, it's not explicit, but it's it's implicitly implied Gots has a very good relationship with a lot of the uh, attendee uh, porters and stuff and squires that he has, random footmen. Like, he's ma- he's able to mention a lowly gunsmith, that guy that gets shot in the chest and stuff yeah. and survives. He's able to name him, which is just stunning that he's able to name this, this well, for historical purposes, uh, sorry, it's stunning that he's able to name for historical purposes a complete nobody, right? I don't, I don't mean that to be like offensive to whoever this this guy was, or if he is living descendants today that can trace back. I don't mean to like throw shade at this poor guy who was shot in the chest, but he, historically speaking, he lived in the 16th century and he was a peasant. Like he's a, he's really a nobody. I don't think I don't think he has a existing gravestone right now, for all we know, right? Like. No one knows who this guy is, but Gotts names him, and clearly, like, he knew this guy. Um, and he doesn't ever have anything bad to say against the lower classes unless they do something like that's not virtuous or they do something immoral. Um, but, like, most of the time, he's like, Yeah, my, my, he almost talks about them like they're just fellow soldiers. If you look back throughout history at all the writings of different military commanders, whether they be emperors or kings or lords or princes or whatever, uh, notably in my mind, like Julius Caesar, during his writings about his various campaigns throughout Western Europe, uh, you'll note that I think through all, at least his, his campaign in Gaul, he only mentions two soldiers by name. Now, of course, I know that because HBO showed Rome, right? Like Titus Polo... Uh, Lucius Verinus, like we. Oh, they're supposed to be those two guys. Yeah, those are the only two out of the hundreds of thousands of men that go into Gaul with him, and the millions of Gaul Gallic uh, auxiliaries and stuff, and maybe random German auxiliaries and and Greek aux like all these people. The only two legionnaires and. Military people of a that aren't patricians that are plebs that he names are Titus Polo, Lucius Verinus. Now, unlike the the show, they're both actually centurions. So, as far as plebs go, they're actually pretty high ranking plebs. Like he doesn't. He, those are the only two of the hundreds of thousands of people he serves with. Doesn't mention any of his other porters, and you you know why that's the case? Because they're nobody. Everybody else like didn't exist as far as he was concerned. Like it's not worth writing about, mm-hmm. right? He's like, no one's going to care about this in the future. Uh, and that was that was the attitude. I, I mean, there's that there's a famous story of when he lands in Britain. Well, they they are about to land in Britain, and they see all these guys in blue standing on the shore yelling at them, and they're like, maybe this isn't a good idea. Those are demons. And one brave legionnaire is like, what the hell is wrong with you guys? And he pulls a Dan Daly and he jumps off the boat, uh, the, the trireme or whatever, and he, he pulls out a sword and he yells at the guy, like, come on, you sons of bitches, you want to live forever? And he's like, one man charges into this horde of blue <laughs> blue Britons and everybody else on the boat is so embarrassed at this guy's act uh, that they all, they all charge right behind him. And guess what? Caesar doesn't even write what his name was. Yeah. He doesn't even say, like, this was Bob. He doesn't, <laughs> yeah, he doesn't Bob. even mention, like, this guy was, like, the most heroic man. He single-handedly, like, spurred the invasion of this this alien continent or alien island that, that no one had ever, no Roman had ever been on. Yeah. 
that was literally an island of monsters and sea serpents and, and sirens, right, and cyclopses. And this guy was just like, I don't get, I, I don't give yeah. a shit. I'm going in, right. In any other context, uh, in, in a modern context. Guys that do stuff like this tend to get Victoria Crosses or the Medal yes, of Honor or yeah. something. This guy doesn't even get his name mentioned in, in the official history. So this was the attitude, and the fact that Gotts, uh, it just shows like the, how important this infantry revolution is. It's like the, these these nobodies are starting to be recognized in the historical record, and I th- I find that uh, very interesting in terms of that relationship. And I don't think the officer class and the lowly enlisted are ever this cordial uh, uh, after this point in history. It's a very, very interesting time as far as the the relationship between officers, NCOs, and the lower enlisted goes. There will be a later podcast about the British-Roman Cyclops War at a different point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I agree with you. Well, and it's kind of part of this whole infantry revolution and in that sort of tactics are changing the the knights and the uh, lowermen are f- more frequently just in the in the soup together like they're yep. both in these kind of um these camps and they're sort of standing side by side and i mean they they still have different kind they still have very different social standing and different like sort of roles on the battlefield but especially when they're on the road and in camps the only difference is the knights of horses like that's Yep. Other than that, they're mainly living in the same sort of facilities and have access to many of the same sort of services. Uh, Knights probably have slightly better ones, but... Yeah, but they're all, like, kind of sleeping with the same prostitutes. Yes, and the, the, yeah. The, the that's a big part of warfare yeah, this that time. Was, uh, I mean, that's arguably a big part of warfare throughout the entire history of warfare, yeah, but, yeah. The second oldest profession, right? Yeah, second so, oldest profession, yeah. So, with um yeah because like there was a there was a serious sex trade going on with uh, women women of the night following the the camps of yeah. these roving bands of soldiers because they're out of the a watchful eye of the church on campaign and yes. on the road and stuff they would set up shop so to speak and um uh, earn a commercial living as the as as one historian put it, a commercial living, right? Is that yes, there's. Uh, we should. I think we should na- name drop the video. Yes, yeah, San Roman's series. Yes, yeah, San Roman's series has. He does a way better job. Than those he talks series. a lot about pike and shot warfare, but there's one video in particular we'll recommend, which is basically talks about camp life, life yeah. for early modern warfare. Fantastic. We watched it a bit. It, it goes into sort of what it was like living in an army camp this yes. day for both soldier and civilian. Um, in great detail, so we highly recommend you watch that. Yeah, and this is where the ordinary people start showing up in the historical record. Uh, very, very interesting, and Gotts's memoirs are a reflection of this, where he's actually naming people. He doesn't talk too much about camp life, but they're probably eating, drinking, sleeping, and conducting commercial transactions together as uh, collectively, and uh, a lot of a lot of like the lower class would have probably met their wives <laughs> initially as uh, as clients, so to speak. So this is this is, a, this is a very interesting time. These camps, in many ways, would have been the Wild West, uh, which would have probably motivated them during these feuds, right? Going to this like Wild West camp, which uh, in many ways was better than the privations of living on a 
rural farm somewhere. Yeah. Scraping at, at least in the camp, you can go from sort of area to area. If this area doesn't have any arable land, it's okay. The camp's moving in like two weeks. Yep. Yeah. We're moving on. There's no one watching over your yeah. shoulder, right? It's, it, it's, it's almost like this big party. Yeah. Until the Thirty Years' War destroys all that, but... Yeah, that's a bit time, after God's. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit after God's, like about five decades after, so like, yes. this hasn't happened yet, but this is a pretty party, like, you, you party and then you go out and fight. Yeah, so it's... So it was, a, it was, despite the risks of death and dismemberment and suffering, it's a pretty good life, all things considered. I don't think uh, soldiering at any point in history... Uh, was at least that enjoyable, right? Um, and also the fatality rate was relatively low yeah. compared to the Thirty Years' War, just because, again, the well, armor yeah, the, was getting so good. To be everybody. fair, comparing, like, regular... Comparing, like, your average early modern war to the Thirty Years' War is a bit yeah. like comparing, like, late... Like, late Imperial British Wars to, like, World War One Western Front. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> just, so, yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, the tech was at a certain point where almost everybody could be a super soldier. Yes. And uh, you'd just go out and party, and then you'd fight, and then you'd, you'd, you'd come back and just say, I was a, a puritanically pure Christian. Yeah, you might be over-romanticizing uh, it a little, but yes, it was certainly, for many people, it was better than... Unless you lived on... Of course, on, I'm not saying there were no like privations, and obviously yeah. it, it probably smelled like horse crap all the time, and again, there was a risk of death and dismemberment and being screwed over by bandits or uh, there were knights that were incompetent that would lead you poorly there were there was gambling right you yep. could lose all your money you get stuff stolen uh, there, there were no oh this is another thing that is mentioned in a lot of the footnotes of this book there's no centralized court so if you have a dispute with someone in the camp well, you basically you have to fight them it's a feud a yeah. feud just happened and you have to fight with a sword yeah. or a spear or something and or even just your fists your but fists. It's, it's gonna hurt and, one it, way yeah, or the so other I'm not saying it was all you know I'm not trying to romanticize it in any way like but it was probably better than a lot of points in history yeah. to be a soldier. Well, um, what I think is a good way of saying is, unless you lived on a particularly nice, like, arable plot of land and had a particularly, like, benevolent noble, it was probably better to sort of move around with this, uh, in yeah. these camps, in rather than being stuck on, like, also, particularly yeah, crappy yeah. land. And, or, and with the advent of, like, professional soldiering and, like, mercenary groups... There's a vested interest in the morale of the camp. Absolutely. So if there's somebody that is like a thief and a known thief, um, things like you know running the gauntlet start showing up. Or yeah. Like we're like, vigilante justice. There's like vigilante justice because there's no centralized court. Yeah. So you know when you show up to this camp that if you're a moral like virtuous person, you're going to be protected as long as you stay you know stay in the good graces of the camp. You're going to be fed. You're going to be clothed. Uh, you might even be issued weapons and equipment rather than having to buy them yourself, which is the hallmark of the infantry of the uh, early or high medieval era. You had to buy your own crap. Now you can kind of like source things or share loot, and you you really had like almost a support network. Um, the development, I guess, the proto squad or the proto section or the proto platoon. Yeah, and and definitely like regiments were starting to develop. Yeah, right. One final thing also that we should say about the infantry before we move on to the Peasants' Rebellion is 
Uh, this is also a period of time, and this is another big part of the infantry revolution, is you're starting to get soldiers who are basically professional soldiers who are mercs and mercenaries in for lack of a better word who often context, yeah. yeah who often swap like who they're fighting for uh sometimes in the middle of a battle <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. um but yeah who are professional soldiers like that's how they um make their living they're not just peasant farmers who are like conscripted like oh we're going to war today yeah. boys um and then we're going back to the farm in like a few months if we survive you're starting to see the of professional armies. Now, they're not professional state armies. They're generally run by mercenary captains or people people like Goths who are knights and kind of almost warlords in some way. But they are professional armies. And that compared to during most of the Middle Ages where you're either like part of a more primitive society where every man's a warrior like the Vikings or the Mongols. And by primitive, I'm just meaning like less agricultural these primitive societies often washed away the more uh civilized quote-unquote civilized ones quite easily or you're part of this like feudal system where you're a farmer 95 percent of the time and an infantryman five percent of the time and terrified and poorly equipped yes so you're either like a barbarian warrior or a um a farmer a farmer is conscript the only like professional soldiers in medieval europe are knights yeah um this is when you're starting to see like the creation of these professional Albert mercenary armies. The regiments. Yes. Right? It's regimented. It's yeah. Things start to regiment. Yes. All right. Let's talk about the peasant rebellion. Right. So with the context of this like cordial relationship in mind between Gots and his subjects, the thing happens in... 1524. In, 15, in 1524. An event. It's super complex, so we're not going to get too deep into the context. <laughs> yeah, the, like, ger- the German it's, peasants. It's, it's very tricky to explain, but basically, the Protestant Reformation is happening, so there's the schism in Christianity. The peasants are divided because of the chaos. People that feel, I guess, subjugated. I don't want to go full there, Hegelian. I don't want to go full Hegelian, but people are, like, subjected. Uh, they start to wig out. Yeah. I, I'll just say there's three kind of causes of this okay, rebellion. Yeah, sorry, you, you explain it yeah. more historically than my... Yeah, my, yeah. Okay, uh, peasant are rebellions are not an uncommon... They're not super common, but they're not an uncommon yes, fact of yes. late medieval, early modern life. Um, the, the main uh, reasons for this peasant rebellion, this has been debated a lot by historians, but there's basically three main reasons. First of all, as you mentioned, the Protestant uh, Reformation... A lot of um, a lot of peasants don't feel the need to like start viewing the church as kind of an oppressive organization that doesn't pay taxes and yet demands money from them. They're still religious, like there's no great atheism or rejection of uh, Christianity, but there's a rejection of the sort of church as an institution, and especially among obviously Lutheran yeah, or Lutheran you, sympathetic. You can also just general economic problems. I think there's a bad harvest, price of grain goes up. That kind of thing tends to lead to unrest, no matter what the sort of ideological underpinnings are of it. And finally, and this needs to be uh, mentioned, not all peasants are the same. Like there's there's different classes within the big group that's called peasants. Some of which live fairly comfortably. They're not all these sort of stereotypical oppressed living in mud and eating you know weeds people um 
And there was increasingly a growing, basically, middle class of peasants who were not exactly educated, but were a bit more literate and a bit, like, sort of more socially advanced than other peasants. And they were worried that the nobles were going to take away some of their privileges, so they are a big uh, instigator of this. So basically, those are the three main causes of this peasant rebellion, and poor Gotts basically becomes caught up in it, and I think you can describe what happens to him during this. Yeah, so he he gets caught up in this thing, this event. He's more or less dragooned into leading the peasants. Yeah. Because, and, and just out of sheer honor and obligation as a as part of like his feudal responsibilities, because it kind of goes both ways, right? Obviously, he's he's above them as far as like a societal hierarchy goes, but he still has an obligation to them to listen to their grievances. There's a there's a concept called like uh, it's I believe it's patriarchal deference. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but just in in the pre-industrial revolution world, if you were a landowner you had an obligation to your serfs in the same way that the serfs had an obligation to you, in the same way that if you're a father, you had an obligation to your sons and your daughters and your wife, in the same way that your wife and your sons and your daughters had an obligation to you. It went both ways. Phileo piety and all yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like a more modern term. Like, if we're specifically the early modern context, it, the term, like, academically is... Uh, patriarchal difference because all yeah. revolves around the man, the yes. man. But at the same time, the man has expectations. There's expectations placed upon him. He has to go to war. He has to conduct the harvest. He needs to lead his family, guide his family, um, educate his family, uh, make sure his wife is training the kids in a certain way in, in the faith, in cultural customs, in social norms. In how to fight a feud, <laughs> when to engage in one, the idea of honor, all that stuff like comes from the father. And in return, the, the children are expected to also bring that back. And it's not, I guess it's not really filial because it's not, it's not like the kids have an obligation to take care of the parents in their old age. I mean, maybe that, that, that would have been like based off each individual family. It's more so like the obligation of like what the responsibilities are. They really go both ways. If it falls out of sync... You have disaster, and this is exactly what happened uh, in the aftermath of the Black Death, where you have so much of the population getting wiped out. Families are all like kind of messed up, and there's a lot of orphans and stuff. That's that's kind of why the world changes after after events like the Black Death or the Thirty Years' War, where you have just families getting mixed up, messed up, and there isn't this like back and forth relationship that is. Not not only like implicitly enforced through with the, each individual family, just based off the social norms at the time or the social contract um, that existed in that period, but also explicitly by the church. Because if you if you look at uh, the the writings of Saint Paul in in, in the New Testament and stuff, um, it's uh, Priscilla Aquila in the Bible. It's enforced like. There's kind of an obligation now, like a lefty or whatever will tell you, like, oh, it's it's patriarchy, but it's it's a little more complex than that because right. it's like, well, that's like, where the yeah. whole concept of patriarchy comes from. It's yeah, like it's, patriarchy literally translates so to I, rule I, of the I, father. I, I'm using rule of the father. I'm using like yeah. the I'm using like the dumb lefty argument here. FYI, like yeah. the dumb lefty argument is like, oh, the man controlled everything, and it's like, yeah, but like 
as a result, as a result of having control over certain things, he had to go to war. He had to ensure his family was fed. He had to ensure the harvest goals were maintained, that the taxes were paid, that the wars were won, and the feuds were settled in favor yeah. of the family. All that, right? He also had to pass those values on to his children, his sons, his daughters alike. Mm-hmm. And if he did stuff like... I'm sure it happened, but if he did stuff like, say, beat his wife or beat his children or be unreasonable to them or be unjust to them in some way or unvirtuous or adulterous, uh, he easily cannot expect his wife and children to be the same. Yeah. Right? To do the same. There was an obligation. You had to do that or you kind of lose your... You, you you have to follow up with your responsibilities or you lose any semblance of power that you have. So this applies also to like the class structure in many ways. Like even though he's a he could just tell these peasants no, they are still his peasants. Yeah. And they kind of just be like they're they're kind of just like and the peasants are kind of just like you are now our leader and he can't yeah. say no. Yes. Because you know what he he owns the land. It's like we have a grievance. And we're doing stuff that you don't like, so you gotta give us orders. If you don't like what we're doing, give us orders. We yeah. expect you to, in fact. And one of the things he says is like, you guys have to stop burning because you have grievances right now, but you can't burn stuff down. That's yeah. one of his things. Also, you only get me for eight days, right? Those are my terms, right? And those are my terms for you. I but at the same time, he is still willing to. Basically, they lead them into lead battle. Into battle, yeah. And of course, that eight-day thing doesn't really work out. Like yeah, he's kinda, he's in charge for a lot longer yeah, than he, that. He, I think he's in charge for like three, four months or something. And he's like, he's expressing the whole time, like, I'm not happy with this arrangement, but it's like my duty as yeah. the de facto ruler of this mob yeah. that uh, I I have to lead them, and it's. Again, this is a very foreign concept to us because that's all. That almost sounds like, let's get Tsar Nicholas II to run the Bolshevik Revolution for a while. <laughs> yeah. it, just, it just doesn't make sense with, with our understanding of politics, the yeah. understanding of the nation state and stuff, and political groups and in groups. It'd be a bit like if Ian Smith was running, like leading Zandler yeah, yeah, so or like, something. So basically, Mugabe and Ian Smith traded places. Yeah, it just. It's just like because they're my people too. Like it's just, yeah. it doesn't like people pay lip service to that. And I think modern politicians pay a lot of lip service. Like we need bipartisanship because they're they're Americans too. They're Americans. Yeah, too, that kind of. Well, you know what? what but they don't really like, mean it. Yeah, go, <laughs> go lead ISIS or something. If you know, because some I'm sure there's some random people in the U.S. that are like sympathetic to terror groups. Oh, of course, with, yeah. with the U.S. president, like I'm going to take charge of this oh. terror group because. <laughs> Well, I mean, maybe, maybe they. Maybe the CIA maybe does the CIA, that. But... Like the president wouldn't like put on a, you know, like, the C- the president in nineteen. Good example. The president wouldn't in nineteen twenty one go to Blair Mountain and like yeah. lead the striking miners. Yeah, exactly. Against exactly. the army. Yeah. Right and like. And tried like to negotiate yeah. between both sides while also firing at the army with, from behind like a boulder with like some miner next to him with yeah, a gun. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. It's that's like basically yeah. if um, if Joe Biden showed up at a NASCAR race and not only was like 
you're all Americans. He got into a car, like a NASCAR, <laughs> like a stock car, and started racing. Yeah, like that's how crazy this is. This this should be to us. Yeah, it is. It's it's like weird, but that's that's literally what the world was. Where if you were like the, if you were like the president of the era, guess what? You're going on NASCAR. You don't yeah. have a choice. Yeah, and you're you're uh, and that's that's what the the the, the peasants took on NASCAR. They had a little uh, little uh, boogaloo, so yeah. to speak. Right, I'd be actually, you know, that, that speaking of the boogaloo or whatever, that's like if Joe Biden was to lead in, like basically whatever the January sixth thing was <laughs> yeah. actually led by Joe Biden. This is a this is what's happening. <laughs> that's actually a good. He's like because you're all Americans too. That's actually based. That's basically what happened. Yes, yes. Right. And he's like, here are my rules. You can't damage anything, but I'm going to lead this because yeah. you're all Americans too. Yeah, like that, that would just never happen today. You can pay lip service to bipartisanship all you want. But yeah, no, there isn't this happen. very weird sense of noblesse oblige. Like, yeah, I have an like obligation to you. Yeah, just because of who you are. Right? Uh, yeah. So basically, yeah, the peasant rebellion is sort of Gotz's last major uh, military escapade. Uh, he's in a few other feuds after that, but basically, he dies. You know. In 1562, at the end of a long life in his 80s, uh, he has a bit of a legacy. He's well, actually, we we got to talk about how it, how it ends. So basically, and not to spoil the book, it is historical record. But in a nutshell, the peasants aren't super successful because no, they, they get wiped out. They pretty get wiped hard. out pretty hard. But and and Gotz, as the leader of this revolt, um, is basically placed under house arrest, and is because there's no real centralized court. It's kind of He's kind of shuffled around to different authorities to figure out what to do with him because he was technically an insurrectionist. And uh, the, really, the, the big crux of this book, he's defending his reputation, going like, I've done all these things in the past honorably and never against the Kaiser. Ne- I never yeah. raised my sword against him. All of my actions were to defend the Reich, even though it's very disjointed. Yeah, The Reich being the Empire. It, it's not this real empire it's just the conglomerations of random small states i did everything in my power to work in the best interest of this empire yeah. right and that's that's why he's writing this book uh basically under house arrest at this point because they're trying to figure out what to do with him and eventually they're just like you know what like you, you did what you had to do right? yeah and, um maybe they were still very skeptical of him towards the end of his life because of the fact that he did take part in this thing uh, but there's he's not like execute. It's not high treason or whatever. Yeah. To be fair, they didn't. There wasn't the central authority to <laughs> prosecute <laughs> to, him. To yeah. Prosecute him in that sense. But yeah. they do keep him basically under house arrest yeah. for a while, yeah. which isn't that bad. He's in a castle, so yeah. it's not like he's in like a hovel somewhere. Yeah. Right? The, the peasants get repressed pretty hard. This actually led to the a reduction of yeah. rights yeah. in the for the peasants in Germany. As, but, as peasant wars in the early modern era tended. Yes, yeah, they generally weren't very successful, but yeah. yeah, but that's kind of the end of Gotz's story. Not the end of his legacy, though. He was actually um, has a few sort of interesting things that are named after him or done in honor of him. During the Second World War, the 17th SS Panzer Grenadier Division was named after him, and their uh, sort of you know all SS divisions kind of had that sort of artwork badge. Um, hand. Yeah, there, theirs was his iron hand, which is pretty cool. Uh, this iron hand has been a Faust. Yes, yep. his iron hand has been a symbol for many things throughout Germany. Uh, 
the great German uh, writer and playwright Van Gogh made a play about him. And there's actually, we didn't quote it in the book, but there's a very famous scene where Gotts tells a uh, another knight, Lech mich I'm Arsch, which literally translates to lick my arse. <laughs> um, and Mozart named a canon after that, which we were listening to earlier and laughing yeah, quite and a lot you, at. Uh, we're going to put it in the video description, right? The YouTube. Yes, we will the put YouTube the yeah the Mozart canon. So if you want to listen to that, it's on the website. Lick mich im Arsch. Lick my ass, lick my butthole, however you want to. Yes. The translation is loose. Yes. As loose as the butthole being licked. <laughs> so, uh, it is a very loose translation. Oh, God. I'm going to have to keep that in, aren't I? It's this, um, he says it kind of in passing, like someone's like, hey, like I'm giving you an order, and he's just like, lick my ass, I'm doing my own thing. In, in yeah. the middle of a battle, right? He's yeah. like, I'm not, I'm in the middle of a fight, I don't have time to. Yeah. I'm making an executive. De- if we're to translate it today, it's like, "Sir, with due respect, I'm making an executive decision." Uh, but in please kindly fuck off. Yeah, <laughs> kindly leave me be. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't have all that time to say that, so it comes out in his iconic Swabian way as "lick my ass." Not even "lick my ass, sir," just "lick my ass." Mm-hmm. So that's what a lot of people know. Uh, Gots for yeah that phrase is kind of famous in Germany. It's uh, in the history. Yeah, there is a lot of folk history. It's a bit like the two finger thing in England, where it's just this medieval expression that's come down as kind of the hey fuck you, sort of. um, So lick lick my arse. It's uh, it's in the video description. It's not in the video description on the website. We will put it on the yeah. Yeah, we're gonna put it on. So we're gonna end this by actually reading just a couple of paragraphs from the editor's foreword. We really like this because it embodies uh, yeah. kind of everything we just talked about. Yes. So, well worth reading the book. Bindu, take it away. Gotz von Berlittenschken was simply a man filled with an abounding love of life, an unquestionable desire to throw himself into the world without reservation. He was not restrained by an overbearing civility or even by the law, but wanted above all to win fame, honor, and respect from those around him and do right by those who had done right by him. He was truly one of the last knights of romance. In a time where most souls are shriveled and dusty from disuse, such a figure shines all the brighter. There are, of course, other reasons as well. The history itself is often fascinating, especially for those who come to this book without a pre-existing interest in Germany, feudalism, or the era of the early Protestant Reformation. Those in our audience who have only a cursory knowledge of the era may find it interesting to get an inside perspective of an era that is usually only depicted in sweeping generalizations. It is also simply an enjoyable read, which is only enhanced, in my opinion anyways, by the sheer historical curiosity of reading something written in the Holy Roman Empire of the 16th century. That is by a fellow named Rollo of Gaunt, who is the editor. I'm 100% sure that's a pseudonym, but we figured it was pretty good to read it. Yeah, guys, the autobiography of Gotts is available on Amazon. It's a pretty short read. It's only around 100 pages. Same length to uh, Rifleman Harris. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty cheap, too. And, I mean, if we could talk for, like, an hour, an hour and a half or whatever we've done so far from 100 pages, must be a pretty good read. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, I mean, if we if we were to pick any follow-up to Peter MacLeese, it would be this one. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, if, if you haven't already, by the way, do check out our three-part series with the legendary Scottish mercenary Peter MacLeese available now. Again, the MacLeese 17 uh, slang vels 
if they are still available at the time of um, this podcast release, are available. Very, very cool product. And uh, it, was, it was really cool to work with Peter on that. Again, that three-part series is out, goes over the book, and uh, we did an interview with him, which was awesome. Um, so please check out the Peter McAuley series if you haven't already. We'd also like to give a special thanks to the members of the Fire Force Ventures Buyers Club for continuing to inspire us in what we do. We are moving forward with some pretty exciting ventures, the launch of the YouTube channel, uh, potentially some battle animation stuff or firefight animation stuff because we're, we're slowly working towards uh, building the capabilities for that. Um, the support from the Buyers Club has been fantastic financially. We are all donor-run, so if you also would like to donate to us, you can support us uh, on our subscribe star at menamongmenstories.com. Or you can that. also donate on our website uh, yep. at our merch store, which has some really cool products, which may already be out by the time this is released. Hopefully they are. Hopefully they stores, are. Uh, horn mugs and all that stuff. Horn Just mugs, T-shirts, maybe some patches soon. Yeah, probably some more patches. Including maybe a GOTS patch? Yes. yes. We'll, we'll work on that. We'll work on that. We'll do a non-SS one for obvious reasons. Non-SS one, yeah, for obvious reasons. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe we should do a Lick My Ass patch. Yeah. I don't know. What do you guys think? Do let us know. Uh, you can always contact us at info at menamongmenstoriespodcast.com or just contact the us page on the website menamongmenstories.com. Whether you're listening to us on Spotify, YouTube, our website, menamongmenstories.com, our friends at Commando Blog, uh, or any of your favorite podcast streaming services, we would like to sincerely thank you for continuing to listen and support this podcast. Again, we are all like donation run, basically a little bit of a merch store thing, but uh, this podcast will always be free, and hopefully you guys have enjoyed this episode. As always, a very special thanks to uh, the members of any law enforcement or active duty military formation. Um, Thank you for allowing us to do what we do by continuing to do what you do, holding the line out there. Uh, And of course, uh, another shout out to firefighters, uh, ambulance, EMT, EMR types, while Wildland firefighters, again, what's the word? What, bush firefighters? Bush yes, firefighters. Yeah. Bush firefighters, dispatchers, um, all of you first responders out there, thank you so much. And uh, you can always check me out at www.fireforceventures.com if you'd like to get some cool militaria. And you can always follow Bindu, actually, because he's now basically running the instant. He's, he's kind of turned into a Gotts von Berlikin of his own right on Instagram, running the uh, Instagram page at Men Among Men Stories. Is that it on Instagram? Yep. So you can follow uh, Bindu there and you can follow myself at Fire Force Ventures on Instagram as well. Again, I run Fire Force Ventures, great military there. You can support Bindu and I's efforts at www.menamongmenstories.com. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I have no final uh, point, but uh, I will I will end it off with um, Bindu. I think you should lick me. I'm arched. <laughs> Bindu? So pull up, grab a chibouli, and have a great day, guys.